This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear All Will Be Well by Yi Yun Lee, which was published in The New Yorker in March of 2019. I had two small children then, both in preschool, but despite others' warnings, I did not feel susceptible to the various dangers that the world could dole out. If the world had a mind to harm, it would do so to the prepared and the unprepared equally. The story was chosen by Jamil Jan Kochai, the author of the Penn Hemingway Award finalist 99 Nights in Logar and the story collection The Haunting of Haji Hotak, which was published in July. Hi, Jamil. Hi, Deborah. Welcome to the podcast. It's so good to be here. So you were a student of Yi and Lee's at some point, right? That's right. I studied with her for two years at the uh, creative writing program at UC Davis. And how was that? It was a spectacular experience. One of the reasons that I decided to apply for UC Davis was specifically to study with Ian. And so being able to study under her, to work with her, to attend her workshops, and to receive her guidance in general, it was it was really a dream come true. I can't begin to overemphasize what a generous and wise teacher she was. I owe her a lot. So had you read Yi and Lee's work before the workshop, before the class? That's right. You know, um, I was doing research on the creative writing program, and uh, and then I saw Ian Lee's name, and so I thought, you know, I should read a little bit of her writing just to see what it's like. And then, um, and I was absolutely blown away. At that time, I was reading a good deal of Faulkner and and Barry Hanna and Cormac McCarthy, these very sort of stylistic, uh, very audacious writers, I would say. And so when I read Ian's stories, I was I was so mesmerized by how quietly devastating they were, her her sentences especially. And so I thought it was it's sort of it was almost the very opposite of how I wrote at the time and even how I continue to write. And so I thought, you know, there was gonna be a lot for, for me to learn from her. Yeah. I'm not sure if you can learn to write the way she does. No, no, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a challenge. <laughs> I completely agree. The, uh, you know, she had a lot to teach me, but completely agree with that. What would you say is is sort of the defining characteristic of her of her writing? I mean, you know, one of the things that she said to me during workshop, and it stuck with me for the rest of my life, um, was one day she told us that the relationships between your characters that has to be the heart of your story. And I think that's something that that I repeatedly see in in her work as well. It's something that I carried with me. But whenever I read her stories, you know, there's always these these very complicated, layered relationships that take a long time reading after reading to sort of unpack. And so I think that that would be one of the key features, these these beautiful, complicated, sometimes, you know, a little bit uh, you know, distressing relationships that you can find in her work. Right. That's definitely true of, of the story you're reading today, All Will Be Well. Um, what what made you choose that one? There are certain features of the story that I don't think you often see in Ian's stories. You know, I, I, she's mentioned in the past that she doesn't always like to write in first person. And then on top of that, it's it's also a story about a writer as well. And so those features struck me immediately. And then the fact that the story, it's so much about storytelling itself. And so for that reason, I was, I was very struck by it. Yeah. Um, we'll talk some more after the story. 
And now here's Jamil Jan Kochai reading All Will Be Well by Yi Yun Lee. All Will Be Well Once upon a time, I was addicted to a salon. I never called ahead and rarely had to wait. Not everyone went to Lily's for a haircut. The old men Lily called uncle sat at a card table, reading newspapers and magazines in Chinese and Vietnamese. The television above the counter was tuned to a channel based in Riverside, and the aunties, related or not related to the uncles, watched cooking shows and teledramas in Mandarin. I was the only customer under 60 and the only one who spoke in English. With others, Lily used Vietnamese, Cantonese, or Mandarin. The first time we met, I lied and said that I had been adopted by a couple from Holland when I was a year old and that we moved to America when I was in middle school. Lily forgave me then for not being able to speak one of the languages she preferred. Brought up by foreign devils, she told a nearby auntie in Cantonese. Half foreign, the auntie said, hair still Chinese. Half devil, Lily said, brain not Chinese. Both laughed. I smiled blankly at Lily in the mirror, and she smiled back. What do you do, she asked, and I lied again and said I was a student. She picked up a strand of hair and let it fall. My hair had just begun to show signs of gray. What subject, she asked, and I said I'd gone back to school because I wanted to become a writer. Will you make money being a writer, she asked, and I said not really. Lily's salon was a few blocks from the high street where armed robberies rarely made even the local news. The salon was caged in metal bars, and there was a chain on the door, which Lily unlocked when she saw her customers coming, and locked again right after they entered. If there was a fire, none of us would escape, I had thought, when I first started to go there, though that didn't alarm me. I had two small children then, both in preschool, but despite others' warnings, I did not feel susceptible to the various dangers that the world could dole out. If the world had a mind to harm, it would do so to the prepared and the unprepared equally. Does being a mother give one the right to bluff? If having children is a gamble, one has no choice but to bluff. We lived on the college campus where I was teaching at the time. Enclosed within the fences was a land of trees and ponds and creeks and fountains. The flowering kinseis near our house were said to have been planted by the servants of the founder's family in the 1860s. The preschool was in a building that, with its white stucco and Spanish-tiled roof, looked like an outdated resort in the Mediterranean. America was a young country, California among its youngest states. The college was a mere debutante in a world of grand old institutes. But all those trees and bushes and buildings gave me the impression that life could be as slowly lived, as long-lasting, as we wanted it to be. Still... The world was full of perils, some rather real, some rather close. Once, campus security sent out a warning that an unaccompanied pit bull had been spotted roaming near the swimming pool. Once, an armed man was chased into the cluster of faculty houses on a Saturday night with police cars and helicopters outside. We turned off our lights and listened to a CD of a French children's drama called Madame Magic, designed as a language course. Sometimes, a drive-by shooting happened on the street corner near the preschool, and on those days, the children were deprived of their outdoor time. All these threats, strangely, didn't worry me as much as the eucalyptus trees. 
a recurring fear I had during those years was that on a windy day a eucalyptus branch would fall on our heads. In one of the earliest conversations about nature I had with my children, I pointed out that the settlers had made a mistake introducing eucalyptus trees to California. A fire hazard in the dry season, I said, and in winter storms, there was the danger of falling limbs. That didn't scare them, though. On our walks, they would sing, Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree. Someday, we decided, we would go to Australia and see koala bears and kangaroos and kookaburras. When I went to Lily's, I wore a dark sweatshirt and blue jeans with a $20 bill tucked in the back pocket. Once, returning to campus after a haircut, I ran into a colleague. My goodness, she said, I thought you were a student. I blend in, I replied. I could easily have booked an appointment at a boutique salon in one of the more picturesque suburbs. Lily was only a few blocks from the college, but was my time so precious that I couldn't drive 20 minutes to a safer neighborhood? Mincia said that a man of wisdom does not stand next to a wall that is about to topple. Even though I wore sneakers and was a fast runner, I should have known that nobody can outrun a bullet. I went to Lily's more often than was necessary. Had I been superstitious, I would have thought that she had put a spell on me. Lily liked to chat. There was always drama in her life. Once, her husband broke a toe when he tripped on the carpet that they had finally installed in their house. After ten years of planning, once, her youngest son, who went to a state university, overslept on the very same morning that a man hacked at random pedestrians with a knife on their street. He could have been killed, Lily said. He's the laziest of the three, but now he says it pays to be lazy. Her father-in-law, just before his death, had made friends with a man whose first name was Casino. The poor man thought it was a sign that he would win some money, she said. Turned out Casino was not a true friend. Casino didn't even go gambling with him. I listened, smiled, and asked questions. These were my most tiresome traits, and I used them tirelessly. Each encounter was a test I set up for myself. How long could I get people to talk about themselves without remembering to ask me a question? I had no stories to share. I had opinions, and yet I was as stubborn as Bartleby. I would prefer not to, I would reply if asked to remark on people's stories. In any case, Lily didn't care about my opinions or my stories. She got plenty of both from the uncles and aunties. I like to believe that she had waited years for a perfect client like me. Elsewhere, I wasn't entirely free from the demands of stating my opinions. Once, a student complained about a J.M. Quitsy novel I'd assigned. It's so insulting that this book is all about ideas and offers nothing for the heart, she said, and I snapped, unprofessionally, that in my view, bad taste was more insulting. Once, a student called Charles Simic a misogynist because he hadn't written enough about his mother in his memoir. Read a book for what it is, I admonished the student, not for what you want it to be. The student replied that I had only stale ideas of what literature was about. My goal is to dismantle your canon, she said, pointing to the Tolstoy and Chekhov on my desk. They're not about real life. What is life, I wanted to ask. What is real? But right away I felt exhausted. I longed to sit in Lily's chair. She would trim my hair and talk about the bubble tea and frozen yogurt place her husband had decided to invest in. 
or her neighbor's new profession as a breeder of rare goldfish, or her oldest son's ridiculous dream of quitting his job at the law firm and attending a culinary institute. Cannons did not have a place in Lily's life. If she were to dismantle anything, it would be a house worth buying as a flipper. So I went to Lily's. To my surprise, that day she did not want to talk about her husband or children or in-laws, or perhaps it was a different day when she decided to tell me a love story. It didn't matter. All those stories she had told me before had been only a prologue. It took one haircut for me to get the bare bones of the story, and a few more to gather the details, and still a few more for me to start looking at Lily askance. What was real? What was life? Perhaps we could all make up stories for ourselves when we didn't know the answers. Here's Lily's story. She grew up in an ethnic Chinese family in Vietnam. At 16, she fell in love with the Vietnamese boy next door, who was 16 too. She was beautiful, he was handsome, but when war broke out between their countries the following year, Lily's father decided that it was no longer safe for his family to live in Vietnam. Tuan came to my parents, Lily said. He asked to leave the country with us. He would do anything just to be with me, he told my parents. My father said, you're not our son, you're your parents' son. I thought about that war, three weeks and six days long, which was nearly forgotten now. When I was in elementary school in Beijing, my best friend subscribed to a children's magazine that often featured stories set on the border between Vietnam and China, with illustrations of main bodies and bombed villages and the heroic faces of intrepid soldiers. But, placed in history, that war was no more than a skin knee or a sneeze to mankind. When Lily asked me if I knew the history between the two countries, I almost slipped and said yes. Then I remembered I was supposed to have grown up in a country far from Asia with an enviable childhood. Lily's family had become boat people, migrating from Vietnam to Hong Kong to Hawaii and later to California. She had helped her parents in their Chinese takeout, apprenticed with an older cousin who ran a hair salon in Los Angeles, married and had children. This nondescript life of an immigrant would have continued if she hadn't recently had news of Tuan, the boy of her girlhood. Our story is like a movie, she said. Like a play, I said. Romeo and Juliet. Do you know someone who can make our story into a movie? For a while, Lily kept asking me that, and each time I replied no, feeling bad for delivering disappointing news, yet not bad enough to stop going to see her. Years of standing in the same spot, cutting and shaving and dying and listening to the uncles and aunties, had turned Lily into an unhurried storyteller. She took detours and, like a verbal magician, offered dazzling distractions and commonplace tricks. Where does your husband get his haircut, she asked once. Tell him to come here. I'll give him a discount because you're my best client. More people came into the story marching in and out like a platoon of extras. Her schoolmates were remembered. Some of them had also had crushes on Tuan. The friendships between the fathers and between the eldest sons of the two families were recollected, but friendships severed by war were hardly worth the movie. Lily's parents had sympathized with their daughter when they first left Vietnam, but soon afterward they had shown impatience when she pined. Well, I can't blame them, Lily said. Love doesn't put rice in the cooker 
or a roof over our heads. What does love do, I asked. Oh, love makes a good movie, she said. Without movies, what would we do with ourselves? Tuan cried for three days and three nights in front of Lily's old house after she and her family left. No one could pry his fingers off the chain lock. At the end of the third night, his older brothers were finally able to take him back to their house. Everyone thought he was going to die. Three days and three nights, Lily said, never a step away from our door. She had heard about this from an old friend whom she had seen recently when he and his wife were visiting their children in America. Could anyone cry nonstop for three days and three nights without food or drink or sleep? But what right did I have to doubt the boy? What right did I have to want him to express his heartbreak more poetically or die more realistically, like Michael Fury? For all I knew, Michael Fury had been a figment of Joyce's imagination, as perhaps the boy was of Lily's. I did not know sorrow then, and later, when I did, after my elder son's death, I thought that Lily's young lover had been fortunate to have so many tears in him. Sorrow only desiccated me. Tears came to an end. Desiccation persisted. The boy did not die. He recovered and eventually moved to another province in Vietnam to teach mathematics at a middle school. A woman in town fell in love with him, though he did not reciprocate. He was waiting for me to come back, Lily said. Before we parted, he said he would wait for me all his life. A life of waiting was interrupted by a bout of illness, during which the woman took care of Tuan like a good wife. After that, the two were married, and together they raised three daughters. Isn't it interesting that he has three daughters and I have three sons, Lily said. Think of where our promises went. Did you promise to return, I asked. Of course I did, but we left as refugees. We knew we couldn't go back but he could have kept his promise. Now, that'd be a really good love story, Lily said, but I don't hold it against him that he didn't. He shouldn't have. The next time I went to Lily's, after I'd been away for two months for the summer holidays, she looked ruffled. Where have you been all these weeks, she asked, and before I could answer, she said, my friends have put me in touch with Tuan. Did you see him? No, how can I? We aren't the kind of people who take time off from work and he lives in Vietnam, Lily said. But they gave my contact information to him. He wrote and asked about my family, and told me a few things about his wife and daughters. Everything was fine then, I thought. A love story had arrived at a tranquil ending. He asked me to forgive him, Lily said. Oh dear, I thought. Do you think I should call him? He asked me if I would be willing to talk on the phone. Why not, I said. What if I turn out to be a disappointment, not the girl he remembered? It's only a phone call. You won't see each other. You'll just hear each other's voice. Say a few nice things. You don't have to talk about the past. The two countries were to blame, not the two of you. What if he turns out to be different from the boy I remembered, she said. Maybe you shouldn't call him then, I said. You don't have to. But how can I not? If I miss him this time, we'll miss each other all our lives. The phone call didn't go the way I had imagined. I had thought that Lily and her former lover would have a bittersweet conversation about their youth and exchange a few superficial details about their marriages and their children. Nothing too concrete, happiness and adversity both withheld. 
or that they might be forthright as adults and take a philosophical view, agreeing that their love might not have weathered the changes as they grew older. They would tell each other that they would remain friends. They might even say that their two families could become friends. But I'm not a good writer of love stories. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of by my limited imagination. When Lily finally called, the man had no words but only tears, and she listened to him sob. He was disturbed, Lily told me. I almost felt like crying myself, but I kept saying to him, Hello? Do you have something to say? We've waited for this for so many years. We can't waste our time crying. After a long while, as he was still crying, one of his daughters took the phone away from him. It's too much for father, she said to Lily, calling her auntie. Lily asked the girl about their family life in Vietnam, and she answered with warmth, Father often talks about you, the girl said. We all feel you're part of our family. Lily was working on the nape of my neck when she said this. I couldn't catch her eyes in the mirror. She didn't sound perturbed when she recounted the girl's words, which troubled me. Her voice was dreamy in a menacing way, like a voiceover in a movie. I pictured an actress standing in front of an open window, her back to an unlit room, the moonlight cold in her theatrical eyes. Does he deserve your love, or does he deserve to be killed by you, she asked herself, her face frozen with indecision. Do you have a choice? And then, Lily said, you won't believe this. The daughter said that all three sisters' names have a Chinese character for my name. I never told you. My Chinese name has the character Blossom in it. He put the same character in their names. I shuddered the way one shudders when stepping out of the hot summer sun and into an abandoned tunnel. Where had that thought of a tunnel come from? And then I remembered. It was an abandoned nuclear shelter next to our apartment building in Beijing. My parents' generation had dug the tunnels when it was feared that a war between China and the Soviet Union was inevitable. In elementary school, I had played truant often and gotten into one of the tunnels with a box of matches. The damp and moldy air, the scurrying bugs and rats, the rusty nails I had collected in a box as treasure, I felt terror imagining my children on an exploration like that. Yet, I had been happy then. And then his daughter said, Auntie, I don't think father can talk with you today. It's too much for him. We worry about his health. But do you want to talk to mother? She is here. She wants to talk with you too. Did you talk to his wife? I asked, knowing that Lily's pause was a gesture to allow me to be included in her narrative. She did. I would have too. Do you know anyone who could make this into a movie? I'm telling you, it's a love story and it's a movie. I don't know anyone who makes movies, I said. But what happened? You talked with his wife, and then what? She came on the phone, and I liked her voice right away. I think he married a good woman. She called me sister. Like the daughter, she also said he talked about me often. And then she said, You don't know how much he loves you. You will never understand. And all of a sudden I started to cry. Imagine that. I didn't shed a single tear when he was bawling on the phone. His wife said, But you shouldn't cry, sister. You should be happy. You're the only love he's had. All these years he's kept your photo on our nightstand. In the bedroom the two of them share, I asked. Yes, Lily said. Are you serious? 
Why would I lie? Why would anyone lie to anyone? But people do, I thought, all the time. I talked with his wife and then with the two other daughters, Lily said. It was a long phone call and I didn't hear a single word from him. But you know what made me the saddest? His wife said, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever known. No one has ever said that to me. We both looked up at the mirror. I had not thought of Lily as a pretty woman. I was an exhausted young mother then, courageously blind to the dangers of the world and stubbornly blind to its beauties. I now studied Lily and thought that she was indeed pretty. I also started to think that she'd made up the whole story, just as I had invented my upbringing in Holland. We all had our reasons for doing this as long as no harm was done. Even so, I began to resent Lily. She must have put a spell on me, tricking me into her chair, hypnotizing me with girlish dreams that had not been hardened by life. Maybe you can write my story, and then someone will make a movie from it, Lily said. I should have stopped going to Lily's right away. Perhaps she had seen through me. Tell me a story. She must have known that every time I sat down in her chair, I was making that request. A real story, Lily. Let me tell you a story, she agreed, and let me make it unreal for you. We saw each other one more time after that. She had promised to show me a copy of the photo of her and the boy, the one he kept in his marriage bedroom. A photo would prove nothing, I thought, but where else could I go for a haircut? Finding another salon would be like starting a new relationship, forging a new friendship, while all I wanted was to keep the unknown, good or bad, at a distance. Forget life, real or unreal. What I wanted to do was to raise my children as a good mother should. In those years, the days seemed long, never-ending, and sometimes I felt impatient for my children to grow up, and then felt guilty for my impatience. The photo that Lily showed me, what can I say? Years later, after my son died, I felt a constant ache, similar to what I had felt for Lily and the boy when I saw them in the photo. The same ache, I imagined, would afflict those who now looked at photos of my son. He died at about the age Lily and Tuan were when they fell in love. But that ache was still as distant and as theoretical as a nebula when I was sitting in Lily's chair. She opened an envelope in which a sepia-toned black-and-white photo was preserved between two sheets of tissue paper. The girl in the photo was dressed in a white aoyai, and the boy in a white silk shirt and a pair of white pants. She was beautiful. He was handsome. But those were not the words I would use to describe them. They were young, their faces cloudless, their bodies insubstantial, closer to childhood than to adulthood. They looked like two lambs, impeccably prepared by their elders as sacrifices to appease a beast or a god. Would anyone have been surprised to hear that they died right after the photo was taken? Some children were born tragedies. What do you think, Lily asked, studying my face. Wow, I said. Maybe you can write a romantic novel about us. When tragedies drag on, do they become comedies instead? Or grow more tragic. I could not make a romance out of Lily's story. She was not the first person I had let down with my writing. During those years, when my children were in preschool, at the beginning of each semester we were asked to send a care package that was to be kept at the school in case of a catastrophic earthquake. 
In the care packages, we were to include a few non-perishable snacks, a family photo, a small stuffed animal, and a note to the children, telling them that if their parents could not make it to the school, there was nothing for them to worry about. Everything would be fine, the note was to say. Everything would be all right in the end. I had always prepared the snacks and the stuffed animal and the family photo, but I had never been able to write that note to my children. What could I say to them? If your teacher is reading this to you, it means that mommy and daddy are late picking you up. It may also mean that we will never come back for you, but all will be well in the end. We lived through their childhoods without being hit by a deadly earthquake. The care packages were returned to us when the children graduated from preschool. Still, if a writer cannot write a simple note as a parental duty, what meaning is there in the words she does write? A few days ago, I got an email from my former student who had vowed to dismantle my cannon. She said that she was traveling in South America. She mentioned a few things she had learned from our clashes. I remember that once she said to us, one must want to be great in order to be good. To this day, I still wonder why you look so sad when you said that, she wrote. Under what circumstances had I said that? And sad about what? Had she written to enlighten me about what real life was, I would have applauded her consistency. Instead, in her long email, she talked about what I had taught her. I, too, had been young then. How could I have taught anyone anything? All will be well, all will be well, and every kind of thing shall be well. Yet I could not even write a lying note to console my children. That was Jamil Jan Kochai reading All Will Be Well by Yi Yun Lee. The story appeared in The New Yorker in March of 2019. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Jamil, as you were saying, this is in many ways a story about telling a story. Do you think that's why she begins it with Once Upon a Time? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's another thing. It struck me immediately because, you know, uh, who starts a story with Once Upon a Time? It seems so audacious to me, but but it feels also so so appropriate. You know, you start Once Upon a Time, the beginning of a fairy tale, but then within the story is, is set in this salon you might see, you know, in any city. And so, um, you know, as soon as I read that sentence, I knew this was going to be a special one. Yeah, yeah. It's a little wink to the reader, I think. Absolutely. And then we have this unnamed narrator who arrives at the salon 
And basically, almost the first thing we learn is that the first thing she did at the salon was lie. That's right. It's her first visit there, and she says she grew up in Holland and the U.S., and she doesn't speak Chinese. Why do you think she does that? You know, the character obviously does speak Chinese, and we hear later that she grew up in China. What's her impulse there? Well, you know, I mean, part of it, uh, upon reading the story, it, it seems to me that the narrator there, she's attempting to protect herself. It's a, it's a very defensive uh, instinct, I think, to, to ask questions, to unveil the other characters in the story, but then to keep herself protected by, by this lie. And then, you know, and then the other thing you very quickly realize is that that lie actually gives her even further access to the other characters, because immediately afterward, you see uh, Lily and another their customer begin to talk about her in Chinese because they think she doesn't understand. So it gives her even this further level of access. And so, you know, there's something about that decision to begin the story with a lie, to begin the story in this deceitful manner. You know, at, at a later point, she says it's a harmless lie. But there's also something I think sort of uh, uh, very oddly devious about it. And in the way it becomes both this defense mechanism, but also this method to gain even further access into the lives and, and the stories of Lily and the, and the other patrons of the salon. Yeah, it's quite sneaky. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's also, in a way, you know, she's, maybe she's writing a story about who she would rather be. Though I'm not sure she'd rather be a student than a teacher. Maybe she would. Well, it's also interesting because she puts herself in a position of, of further privilege, right? At a, at a later point, she mentions that she forgets that, you know, she's supposed to have grown up in this distant European country far away from the wars, and she wasn't supposed to know about those things. And so it's this very peculiar, you know, complicated decision that the narrator makes so early in the story. Yeah. I wonder if she knows right off the bat that she's going to have a long connection um, with Lily or if she thinks it's a one-off trip to the salon and she'll never have to remember the lies she tells. <laughs> you know, and I also wonder, you know, she's a writer. She tells us she's a writer in the story. If it's, if it's just her attempt to practice at creating characters or something like that. You know, it's very sneaky. It's a little bit devious, but it's also quite playful at the same time. Yeah. She's the most unwriterly writer. I think I've read, yes. read about. Um, <laughs> you know, she doesn't want to tell any stories of her own. <laughs> she only wants people to tell her stories. She doesn't want to offer up her opinions. She'll do anything she can just to, as, as she says, listen, smile, and ask questions. A strange tactic for a writer. <laughs> yeah, you know, but it's a strange tactic, but it's a very important tactic to learn early on. You would expect from a writer an instinct to to be constantly telling stories or to be constantly giving their opinions on stories. But for me, you know, I think this ability to be able to keenly listen to other stories without interrupting it, without without placing yourself in the middle of it, that in and of itself is a, it's an incredibly important sort of writerly talent. Yeah. And the other thing that's going on in that first section is the theme of danger. We've got a very long list of all the possible dangers in this woman's life that she's supposedly not afraid of. When you read closely, the story kind of goes back and forth between whether she is afraid or isn't afraid of these dangers. Why do you think we get that set up? Well, you know, initially we begin to learn about 
her actual living situation. And, and she lives on this college campus that's closed off. It's fenced off. It's sort of your, your, your prototypical collegiate bubble. But at the same time, as you mentioned, you know, there's this very distinct emphasis upon all these dangers that occur in the world, some of them violent, some of them natural, just all these ways that harm can occur to herself, but then also more importantly, I think, to her children. You can already tell from the beginning of the story that that something tragic is sort of haunting the story because of her almost immediate emphasis upon these dangers, these different ways that a person can be maimed or harmed. But then, of course, later on, we do learn that, that because it's being written in the retrospective, that, in fact, the story is being haunted by the death of a loved one. Yeah. How, how crucial is it to the story that it's being written at a later time after that death? Oh, I think it's absolutely crucial. You know, it, it, it lends the story this sense of it being haunted, right? And it also later on in the story, as we begin to learn more and more about Lily and her past and her own particular tragedy that she goes through, because it's being written in the retrospective, we begin to understand how that story in particular, why it haunts our narrator, why our, why our narrator was so disturbed by it, and why she is in fact returning to it in this story within a story, this frame narrative. All right, my next question is, why? <laughs> How do these two stories intersect? What's interesting is that the, the story of the son and his death is not here. We're not That's given right. it at all. Yeah. We're given the story of Lily's loss and the loss of Tuan, her teenage boyfriend. So why do we why do we get that? We don't get any detail, anything about the death of the narrator's son. We just get Lily's story. Well, it's it's fascinating, right? Because you know, I think that's what's sort of propelling the entire structure of the story itself. So instead of delving into the details of this of this death, we instead we delve into the story of Lily. And you know, it makes so much sense to me with this narrator and this character in particular because the story itself it begins with with an act of of deflection, right? From the very outset, she doesn't want to tell you know, any stories about herself, she, she makes up this whole backstory. Um, but then one of the things that we see and that I think that Ian handles quite, quite beautifully is that later in the story, as we're beginning to learn more about the tragic circumstances of Lily and Tuan's story, it keeps getting compared in one way or another back to the death of the son. I think the first time we actually learn about the death of the elder son is in fact, after we've heard the story, of Tuan and Lily, and in particular, that passage where we also learned that Tuan, you know, he spent three days and nights crying in front of Lily's home and then became very ill and almost died from it. And that's when we first hear about it. And then later in the story, there's also that instance where we finally see the photograph of Tuan and Lily. And then that as well, it's compared to the photograph of the son who has died. And so there's these ways that, you know, it's both an act of deflection, but it's also, it's reflecting or, or sort of grasping at that central death and that haunts the entire story. Yeah, it's amazing that the death of the son can retroactively haunt something that happened when he was alive. Because at the time that she goes into the salon, her kids are happily at their preschool dodging drive-by shootings. Um, and she hasn't experienced that loss. You wonder how much of the story 
genuinely represents what the narrator felt at the time or how much the narrator is now superimposing on what she might have felt at the time. That's exactly right. You know, we get that passage toward the end of, of Lily's story as, you know, as it takes one emotional turn after another. It's quite a spectacular story. But especially when we discover that Tuan had actually kept Lily's photograph on his bedstand for all these years. He never stopped loving her, right? And, and that's the moment where our narrator really begins to doubt Lily's story. And she describes the way that Lily herself is telling the story and, and it disturbs our narrator and it seems very performative to her. You know, she, I think she, at one point she describes it as a movie voiceover. That was a very odd key moment for me because to me it almost seemed as if our narrator is projecting upon Lily. You know, our narrator begins the story with this lie and then maintains it throughout the story. And then, and then of course, this feeling of deceit then gets passed on to, to Lilia as well. You know, I don't know if I'm just foolish or naive, but I, I found myself completely convinced by Lily. And I did wonder if that was a <laughs> moment where our narrator is projecting in the retrospective. Yeah, because you do wonder at times if Lily's telling the truth or if she's embellishing for dramatic effect. That's right. Um, there's no way not to wonder that because she does that dramatic telling and because she's so desperate to have it made into a movie. Um, <laughs> That's right. Why, why is her story not good enough for her? She has to have it turned into something. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's something that um, that our narrator emphasizes, I think, quite early in the story is that there's always these financial incentives that exist within that sort of a circumstance, right? So early on in the piece, uh, our narrator mentions this very theoretical literary argument she's having with one of her students regarding dismantling the canon. But then, of course, immediately after that, she, she, she emphasized that Lily, of course, that wouldn't matter to her at all. She's concerned about paying the next bill, about, you know, flipping the next house, about her husband's investments, about her children's futures. It's these very material financial concerns. And so when you see her uh, say repeatedly over and over again, you know, we should turn this into a movie, we should turn this into this movie, it seems to be, again, like that's sort of a reflection upon Lily's own circumstance. You know, she has to sort of think in this way of how can I get something out of this? And if there's some way to turn this into, you know, a, a financial endeavor, yeah, as yeah. well as just this beautiful story, which, you know, I don't, I don't blame Lily for that at all. I mean, that's the first thing that she asks the narrator if she's going to make money from her writing. That's exactly right. Yeah. But Lily's not thinking... Well, maybe Lily is thinking of herself as a writer. She's definitely thinking of herself as a performer. She wants... Somehow wants her story to be transformed into an art form. That's right. Yeah, you know, I think that's quite well stated. You know, I, I, I do wonder if it's if it does go beyond sort of the, just that financial incentive where where she would want it to turn into an art form. And here she has this writer in front of her, and she's telling her the story a bit at a time. And then, of course, in fact, uh, th that's exactly what the writer does. She turns Lily's oral story into a written story. Yeah, and there's kind of a Thousand and One Nights feel to it, too. You know, she has to wait. Not a day, but she has to wait until the next haircut is due to keep going with her story. And she weaves in all of this pointless detail for the first several haircuts. So it's almost like Lily is trying to spin this out. 
in a way, I wonder if, you know, I think about the very beginning of the story where the narrator says she was addicted to this salon and Lily maybe becomes addicted to having this woman as her audience. I think that's right. You know, we get that um, passage later in the story where um, after our narrator has been gone for two months, we discover that, you know, Lily's been waiting all this time to give her the next portion of the story. And so it's a fascinating sort of look into the relationship between the storyteller and her audience and, and the way that, you know, both of those perspectives, both of those positions can become you know, so indebted upon one another, uh, addicted to one another. Uh, and this is one of the things that I love about oral storytelling in general, where um, where Lily pauses in her story to allow our narrator to sort of enter the narrative and to ask a question. At that point, you know, it's not just Lily's story anymore. It becomes both of their story. And I found that, I found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's an act of storytelling. What's interesting is the setting, you know, because what's happening between these two women as the story is being told is a physical thing. Lily is touching the narrator's head. She's touching her hair. They're catching each other's eye in the mirror, seeing each other reflected. They're both looking the same way, but seeing each other. That's right. There's something very intimate about that. Yeah. Very physical about that. And at the same time, there's a story being formed in words, which are not physical. And then uh, on top of that, this is all occurring within this very communal space, right? So people are there to get their hair cut, but people are also there playing cards, they're reading the newspaper, they're, they're watching dramas on the television, and, or, or they're just chatting and telling stories. And so within that sort of communal space, then you have this very sort of personal, and, and you're right, it's a, a haircut, I think, when you think about it, it's such, a, it's such an intimate endeavor, and it can also be so deeply vulnerable as well. And so it becomes this really, really intriguing and, and, and I think, you know, multi-layered space for a story because you have all these levels working at the same time. Yeah. Um, you know, they spend all of this time looking in the mirror. The, all the time they're together, they're looking in the mirror. And there's that wonderful moment where the narrator says, oh, she hadn't realized that Lily was pretty. So she actually looks and sees her kind of for the first time. I just found that very striking because we're all we're all guilty of not looking while looking. Yeah, that's right. And you know, it's a it's a beautiful passage because it begins with we both looked up at the mirror. So there it, it was as if um they both were on cue, you know. She says his wife said you're the most beautiful woman I've ever known. No one has ever said that to me. And on cue, both of them look up at the mirror at the same time, as if to sort of confirm that statement. <laughs> and then, and then, of course, you know, our narrator does. You know, she realizes that she hadn't actually been looking at this woman the entire time. And then, and then finally, she realizes that that in fact, you know, Lily, Lily is quite pretty. And then, and and so, you know, there's something about that as well. This this connective moment, this this unveiling, that is quite beautiful. It's also another story that's that's pulled into this these layers of story, and that's James Joyce's *The Dead*, which comes in in a way because the narrator wants to critique Lily's story. She doesn't quite believe that it will hold up to fact checking. You know, <laughs> could this guy actually? You know, and the, 
as an editor, I appreciate that because these are questions I would ask. Could he actually sit in front of the door for three days crying, <laughs> you know, with nothing to eat or drink? Is this plausible? Um, I don't know. What do you think she's doing in that moment? Is she distancing herself from Lily's story? Is she trying to disbelieve it? Well, it's a fascinating moment because I recall upon my first reading when I read Tuan cried for three days and three nights in front of Lily's old house after she and her family left, I immediately I thought of the dead. And I was quite proud of myself because I was like, oh, I got that literary reference. And, um, <laughs> and so I felt quite smug about that. But then, of course, later on, she, she directly references it. You know, it feels like a, a very writerly decision. This, this, this makes so much sense to me upon, you know, reflecting upon the story that a writer would then directly connect this moment to Michael Fury. And so Michael Fury is directly mentioned in the story. Joyce is directly mentioned in the story. And, you know, it's not something I think that we, we often see in stories. But of course, there's this comparative act, right? It's so funny because Michael Fury, it's, it's this fictional character, but his death seems more realistic to our narrator than this quote-unquote real death uh, or this real event that occurs with Lily. You know, Lily's telling this as a memory. She's telling this as a true story. And it's so funny to me that then the narrator immediately jumps to literature and that's what she needs to compare it to, which of course she acknowledges by saying, you know, Michael Fury had been a figment of Joyce's imagination. But at the same time, I, I love this this recurring movement uh, where this oral form of storytelling, um, storytelling as an act, keeps getting compared to these literary moments moments, whether that's James Joyce and the dead or Bartleby. So I it, it, it think it just gets at the heart of the narrator's perspective and her, and her mindset at this time. Yeah, it's just sort of hilarious for her to be saying, well, James Joyce was a better writer than Lily. <laughs> that's um, right. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> holding, holding Lily up to quite uh, tough standards. And the other thing is, when I thought about the way that the story is sort of painted, by the loss of the son, you know, I do wonder if there's something about the fact that Tuan doesn't die. I just wonder if the narrator felt that that was a bit unfair, that that he did this beautiful, tragic act of love, spent three days and three nights, apparently, according to Lily, in front of this home weeping out of love. But then he doesn't die, and he gets to live out his life, and he gets to love Lily the entire time, and then Lily gets to find out that she was beloved this entire time. But then our narrator's story, the story behind the story of the death of the son, he, he doesn't get to survive, and, and then his death no. haunts the story in that way. And, and Michael Fury also dies. That's right. Yeah, there's a certain point in Lily's story where the narrator says she starts to resent her. That's right. Um, for hypnotizing me with these girlish dreams that had not been hardened by life. And again, it's maybe a moment of retroactive superimposition mm -hmm. of feeling because at the time when the narrator was hearing Lily's story, she hadn't been hardened. That's right. Um, she hadn't been hardened by her loss. She still thought she was sort of invincible. Yes. Immediately after she compares the death to Michael Fury, she tells us in, in the retrospective, I did not know sorrow then, and later when I did, after my elder son's death, I thought that Lily's young lover had been fortunate to have so many tears in him. Sorrow only desiccated me. Tears came to an end. Desiccation persisted. And so there's this direct sort of comparative act between the narrator's 
act of grieving Antoine's. He got to keep his tears, um, whereas our narrator was completely drained of them. Yeah. And there's an interesting other moment of uh, crying when Lily is on the phone with Tuan, and he can't stop weeping. That's right. And she doesn't cry at all. And finally, she gets on the phone with his wife, and that's when she bursts into tears. So <laughs> yeah, she still has her tears, uh-huh. I guess, but she doesn't have them for Tuan. That's right. She has them when she hears something about herself. That's right. At that age, she has them when she hears what Tuan remembered of her, which is sort of charming, too, because Lily is very much about Lily. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, an interesting parallel. You know, after all those decades, you know, despite their separation and their loss, both characters still do have this ability to grieve in this outward manner. You know, Tuan, after decades, is still crying for Lily. Yeah, and sort of incredibly, this man's poor wife (laughs) is seemingly not bothered by his devotion to his girlfriend from when he was 17. That's right. (laughs) She's lived a shadow life with Lily on her bedside table. So when, when the narrator finally sees this photo, which is her reason for keeping going back, I suppose. She has a very interesting response to it, especially considering that she hasn't yet lost her son, which mm. is she looks at Lily Antoine in the photo and she thinks that they're like lambs prepared for the sacrifice. That's right. Now, they are about to be separated, and perhaps that's the sacrifice, but it's a gory image to superimpose on this kind of ghostly pale photograph of two beautiful young people. <laughs> That's right, you know, and um, very surprising and quite violent and, and gory as well. It's one of those moments where, you know, I do wonder if her description of the photo or her response to the photo is again being painted by the loss of the sun. When we get that first reference to the photo, the, the photo that Lily showed me, what can I say? Years later, after my son died, I felt a constant ache similar to what I had felt for Lily and the boy when I saw them in the photo. So it's this beautiful moment of jumping back and forth in time and in understanding her her emotional response to the photo because it's thinking through that actual moment of seeing the photo for the first time, but it's also being written in the retrospective with the consideration in comparison to the suffering she felt after the death of her son. So it's, it's this beautiful movement in, in terms of time as well and emotional longing. Yeah. I mean, it's just interesting to think about the many layers of story here. That's right. You know, we have the story just told of this time when this woman went to the salon and Lily told her stories. We have Lily's story. We have the story she's telling now superimposed on Lily's story, superimposed on her version of what she was then. We even have almost a story from her student. That's right. Who tells her about what happened, you know, tells her retroactively about her class, things that she can't really imagine actually were part of the class. That's right. (laughs) That she's telling her about a a teacher that she doesn't recognize um, as herself. (laughs) It seems, so. I think it seems almost preposterous to her in that moment, you know, reading the email and thinking that this had once been a concern of hers, now with everything that has, that has come to pass. Yeah. 
And then we get to the very end, a story about a lie she couldn't tell, this narrator. You know, we open with the lies she could tell quite mm-hmm. easily, and we end with the one lie she couldn't tell, which was all will be well. Mm-hmm. To me, it's an indicator that the way she presents herself as having been in that time, kind of careless, carefree, not afraid of danger, except perhaps a eucalyptus branch, mm. um, <laughs> w- was maybe not as true as she thinks it is, mm. right? Because she couldn't write those notes. That's right. So she definitely contemplated the possibility that all will not be well. Yeah. And couldn't lie to her children. It's fascinating to me. I mean, do you think that that structure with the lies at the beginning and the no lying at the end was planned? Well, I mean, it certainly struck me, you know, we we begin the story with with all this deceit and it's one lie after another and then and then of course the the story itself, you know, as we're thinking through Lily's memories and her stories and as uh, our narrator begins to become more and more suspicious of Lily's story, this question of what is what is true and and what is not and and you know she even the narrator directly asks earlier on in the story, you know, what was life and and what was real. And so, you know, at different points, it feels like this this understanding of of truth and how truth can be told or whether it needs to be told, it's sort of one of the central concerns of the story itself. But then on top of that, you know, I think another one of the concerns that comes to the heart of the story is in many ways the way that the, the failure uh, of language, not only to like sort of explicate or, or to explain one's suffering, you know, as, as we see, we, we never actually get the details of the death of the son. But then, you know, throughout the story, it's, it's also emphasized there's these moments of, of miscommunication, of deception, of, of, of one person not understanding the other person. And so I think this is another instance, this moment where all she had to do was write this comforting note for her children, but she couldn't. And I think that does get at what you were saying earlier, that that even then, that even with her, her courageous blindness, as she mentions, that there was some sort of a, a deeper instinct where she knew that she couldn't tell her children this one immense lie, that, that all will yeah. be well. And she couldn't write a love story for Lily. That's right. <laughs> These two failures. <laughs> Why do you think she never goes back? after seeing the photo, because that's the one more time she went to the salon, and that's it. I do wonder, you know, she mentions that there's this feeling of resentment that she feels for Lily, and I do wonder if part of it is because she learns too much about Lily, or that there's something that that happens to their relationship at the end of that story where truth and and deceit, where, where memory and fiction, it all becomes incredibly blurred. And so I wonder if there's something about that that sort of frightened her and wouldn't allow her to return to the salon and to keep learning more and more about Lily, who we don't know. Is she, is she this master storyteller, this performer, this deceitful person? Or, or did she you know, really actually just unburden her memories, her heart, for this client who's been lying to her the entire time? So I wonder if it's a mixture of both resentment for Lily, but also guilt for not telling the truth or for not being able to do something similar. And mixed in there was maybe the fear that seeing that photo strikes in her, that lambs to sacrifice thought she has. Well, you know, she has such a physical, immediate 
visceral response to the photo. And I think you're right. I do wonder if that's something that frightened her. And so what do you think ultimately? Do you think Lily's story is true? You know, I have to say, Lily Lily definitely, she convinced me, you know, I think uh, as a storyteller. And, you know, this goes to <laughs> not just Lily's talents as, as a storyteller, but to Ian as well. Because I think part of it is, you know, we get it a, a bit at a time. And we get these pauses and we get these in-between moments and we get these reflective moments. And so as you're learning of the story over time, it, it feels like you're you're hearing it with the narrator as well. And there's something about that movement, that technique that felt very convincing to me. But, you know, there's there's this beautiful line earlier in the story where she says, I'm not a good writer of love stories because she thought something completely different was going to happen. I couldn't compare my imagination to all that Mm -hmm. happens in heaven and earth. And that was one of those moments where, you know, I found the story so beautifully told and so so surprising in its turns and movements and so unexpected that in that way, it, it became true to me. Well, thank you, Jamil. Thank you so much for having me. Yeon Lee has published seven books of fiction, including Gold Boy, Emerald Girl, Where Reasons End, and Must I Go. Her most recent novel, The Book of Goose, came out earlier this year. She's a 2020 winner of the Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize and the Penn Jean Stein Book Award. Jamil Jan Kochai is the author of two books, the novel 99 Nights in Logar, which was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award, and the story collection The Haunting of Haji Hotak, which is a finalist for the National Book Award. He's currently a Hodder Fellow at Princeton. You can download more than 180 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.